This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. I'm joined today by Dr. Brent Stockwell, Chemistry and Biology Professor at Columbia Faculty of the Arts and Sciences at Columbia University, prolific inventor with over 35 patent applications via our office at Columbia Technology Ventures, and also over a dozen issued patents, as well as a serial entrepreneur. We'll be talking today about his work in neurodegenerative diseases as well as in cancer about the balance between pushing the boundaries of science with basic research versus making an impact on human health with clinical studies, about the way that working at Columbia fosters a spirit of collaboration with other scientists across the institution, about launching startups in New York City now versus nearly 20 years ago when he moved back to town, and about what got him interested in pursuing a career in science in the first place. Dr. Stockwell, you and I have known each other for over 15 years now. We're working together closely. So I've gotten a good sense of the breadth of your areas of interest, but but we have to start somewhere. So can you give us a bit of an overview of your lab's areas of focus? And, and how would you describe your research program to a layperson? Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Oren, with you and the listeners today. Uh, my lab's interested in broadly cell death and metabolism and the implications of understanding that for oncology and neurodegeneration, which are kind of two sides of the cell death coin where you have too much or too little cell death. And when you say neurodegeneration, give us some examples of what kind of what kind of human health implications would that have? Well, these are diseases that involve the slow dying dysfunction of neurons in the the nervous system, often in the brain over time. These are often diseases onset in midlife, uh, cause various motor problems, cognitive dysfunction, sometimes psychiatric problems. And for most of these diseases, there's no treatments. Even though we know a fair amount about the basic mechanisms for some of them, there's no no good treatments uh, for, for the vast majority of these diseases. So they're really uh, devastating in terms of their impact on human health. And is your lab then looking at trying to better understand the, the way that cell death is implicated in these diseases or the reasons that the cell death happens or looking for, for ways to uh, slow or reverse the dying of the cells? Like what part of this problem are you trying to tackle? Right, right. We're interested in the the cell death and metabolism part for the most part of it. So these, like like many diseases, can be multifactorial, and it depends on the subtype and the the specifics of that disease, maybe patient population as well. Uh, But in, in many cases, it seems like there is a specific role for cell death and that it links to metabolism in some cases. And so we think that by blocking the aberrant pathways that ultimately lead to the cell death, and maybe we can block those fairly upstream, in fact, then we can have a protective effect. So maybe you can give me an example. When you say blocking something upstream, um, how would that work? Well, for example, we're working with Hinnick Victorley's lab at the medical center on ALS, which is a motor neuron disease known colloquially as Lou Gehrig's disease. And in in that case, there's dysfunction or stress of various kinds, one of which is in a part of the cell known as the endoplasmic reticulum. 
that sets off a set of events that ultimately results in a certain kind of cell death process happening. And so we've been able to intervene in that process and prevent that sequence of events and, and protect those cells from dying, at least in the models that we've looked at so far. And when you say intervene, are you designing, like how, how does your lab go about trying to intervene in that pathway? Yeah, it's a great question. The specifics depend on each case because we have to build on on the knowledge that we have. In some cases, we don't know what protein to go after. In some cases, we have some ideas about the, the protein or process to inhibit or activate. In this case, we started with just a cell-based screen using cells derived from patients that were converted into motor neurons in a dish uh, from ALS patients or, or normal individuals unaffected. And we, we looked to see how could we protect those cells. And we didn't know what kind of mechanisms would come out of that. And what we found was that various kinase inhibitors were protective. Kinases are a class of enzymes that work on uh, in various ways to control signaling and, and cellular kind of information transfer. And so we at that point, we thought that certain kinases might be important. And then some additional work led us to a specific group of kinases that we've now been able to successfully target with a, a potential therapeutic. When I think about what you're describing, I'm, I'm sort of, it would be easy to think that you wake up in the morning thinking about ALS and you go to sleep at night thinking about ALS. But I think if I understand you correctly, you're saying that, you know, that happens to be like one problem you're trying to solve, but the same methodology might be applied to a variety of other diseases as well. Is that right? Right, right. Because we always approach these problems from the ground up, I guess is one way to put it. So understanding the signaling, the cellular processes, uh, the chemistry, biochemistry, and then we have the tools to to understand those aspects of the problem, and then we have to see in each in each case, each disease or biological process, what what new insight can we gain with the kind of tools that we use. Right. So you focus so far in our conversation about cell death, but also my understanding is that you also work in on in oncology. And I, you know, for, for the layperson, one thinks about cancer, the problem with cancer is that it's actually cell growth, not as much cell death. Are you using the same techniques when you think about the world of oncology as you are in the world of neurodegeneration? It's a lot of the same techniques, interestingly, but it's everything's flipped around. So there the goal is to actually induce cell death, but do it in a way that's selective to certain types of tumors or tumor cells. We all understand a lot of, you know, we study how these tumors work and signaling and microenvironment and all kinds of aspects of their function to know how to intervene. But ultimately, in, in some sense, it's a simple problem. You want to know how to kill cancer cells, but not kill normal cells. Someone has once drawn an analogy, I forget who originally said this, but that's sort of like trying to target your left ear, but not your right ear. <laughs> And I, I think when you say, you know, the, you're targeting these, um, I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, at one point in a prior conversation, I think it was around your work on KRAS, but that in some ways it's like trying to find the right key for a lock. I mean, I, you know, I, I see that you are being a faculty member in not only the Department of Biology, but the Department of Chemistry. Um, 
when you say intervene in these processes, are you literally designing your new molecules or looking at molecules that exist already and trying to figure out how they could be best put to use? It depends a lot on, again, the specific problem we're trying to solve. There are some cases where we don't even know what the lock is or if there is a lock, and we just have to go in and dig around and try to find, understand more of the biology first, the signaling, you know, again, metabolism, the things that, that would tell us if there's a lock to be unlocked to target those tumors selectively. In other cases, we know of a, a protein through previous work from our group or other groups that suggests, oh, this might be a good target. Now, usually if there's a protein and everybody agrees it's a great target, then there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies working to make drugs. And we don't need to do that. Obviously, that's, you know, that's covered and, and we can move on to the next thing. So we try to work on the problems where we don't even know what to go after. We have to discover these mechanisms or there we have some ideas, but they're still like very speculative. And so we're trying to prove out whether a particular target or mechanism would make sense and be useful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think when I hear you talk about this, I, I, I think about there's sort of a dichotomy set up in, in, I think, many of our minds about the, you know, what is basic research and what is applied research. And I think for many of us lay people, you think of the, the basic research is sort of really exploring the way life works and exploring the way the cells work and exploring the way disease works. And, and, and in many ways, the, the, the departments within the arts and sciences, biology and chemistry are thought of as these sort of fundamental basic research departments. Whereas the medical center is more focused on these, on applied research. Um, on trying to find ways directly to solve a disease. Um, uh, and and you've, you've really spanned um, both sides of this. So do you see these as being different parts of your life? Like you come into work and wear one hat and you switch to a different hat? Or are these just seamlessly integrated in your lab? I think they're pretty integrated. My experience in philosophy is that big advances in understanding and treating disease happens at that intersection between basic mechanisms, basic science, including chemistry, and then understanding the disease biology. So often the work going on in the medical center is it's much closer to the disease, which is maybe good in the sense of being physiological, but there are fewer opportunities for an out-of-the-box type discovery because everyone's kind of working within the same paradigm. Whereas if you're coming at it from a, a basic science perspective and trying to integrate that with the, the deep, deep knowledge of the disease, you would potentially see avenues that, that wouldn't be seen otherwise. A good example is we were working for many years trying to understand the different ways that cells can die. And we discovered this cysteine dependence at, at certain cancers or certain cells need cysteine and if they don't have cysteine it kicks off this unusual cell death process we define and we call ferroptosis and then working with a colleague at the medical center ken olive we discovered that pancreatic cancers are actually very dependent on cysteine and then if you deprive them of cysteine you will activate ferroptosis and he has a great state-of-the-art pancreatic cancer mouse model 
that we wouldn't have been able to access otherwise, and he wouldn't have thought to test this idea without our interaction. So that was a perfect example of you need the, the multidisciplinary kind of multi-pronged approach to to tackle these complex problems. Right. And so in some, in some ways, it seems like your work in particular really depends on collaborations with faculty members from across the university and frankly at other universities as well. But I've always been struck by how many collaborations you engage in personally and also how many of those are based here at Columbia. I mean, in some ways, you wouldn't think that proximity uh, that geographical proximity would matter that much. And yet you, you've you collaborated with more faculty members from across the institution, from different schools of the institution than almost anyone I know. Is that is that a preference in your case? Or do you think that Columbia is a particularly collaborative institution? I think it is both. I think it, Columbia is very collaborative. And I remember when I first came here, that was one of the reasons I liked it. My My previous institutions were not collaborative and everyone was competing to do the same experiments in the same department or the, you know, the same institution, which seemed um, wasteful. But at Columbia, it's kind of that middle size where there, it's big enough that there's someone working on everything, but there's one person working on everything, not, not mm. three people. So I think that benefits us here. And then I think it is easier to work with people locally, just being in the same time zone, being able when needed to go and exchange reagents, you know, easily um, to even meet in person in the before times. Uh, I think all of that actually helps, helps the collaborations, a little kind of oil that makes the wheel turn. Right. And let's, let's hope you're right. I mean, as the world starts to reopen and we can all get back to campus again and start collaborating, it'd be, we certainly miss that at, at CTV. I mean, we've we've really found that it is, it's been relatively easy to sustain those relationships over a one-year period. But the idea of trying to sustain that creativity over a multi-year period without that in-person contact is hard to imagine. So you talked about curing, you know, pancreatic cancer in mice and that, that people talk about the different mouse models. And a saying we've heard, I've heard is that, you know, cancer, every kind of cancer has been cured in mice a hundred times over, um, but it still hasn't been, you know, cured in humans necessarily. And so I know you've spent time really thinking about how to help your research get out of the lab and get out into society, um, in, in your case, primarily via startups. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about it, any of the startups you're either currently launching or recently launched and you know why you decided that this was the right path for you to take? Yeah, we're always interested, m- me, my team members working with CTV, in getting the the discoveries, the insights from the lab out into the broader world. And I think it's it's a lot of people assume that if you discover something interesting, it will automatically just turn into a drug or a product or the world will benefit. But and although in theory that seems like it should be the case and that would be great, it's just not how it actually works. No. So you you discover something and you publish a paper because that's your mandate in academia. And if you don't actively do something, it just sits there in the journal, you know, and nothing further happens. Our experience at CTV is that there are, you know, just in some ways, the best case scenario, something will get published in an amazing journal in Cell or Nature or something like that. And we'll get inquiries from industry or inter- inquiries from venture capital. But those are pretty rare. And so how, what do you do next? Well, the first thing is I, I call up Columbia Technology Ventures and 
talk with my contacts there right. with with you and Beth Carter and right you've been working with Beth whether, now for for 15 plus years right yeah right and that relationship is is really useful because I know how she works she knows how the kind of work that I do and it's it's much more efficient than dealing with a different person each time but basically we the first thing we do is we discuss the invention and whether it would make sense to try to patent it and commercialize it in some way is this going to be a therapeutic is it a reagent we might try to get out to reagent companies so that people can use it if it's a therapeutic then what kind of uh licensee might be useful would this be a startup would a would a large company be interested and so we have an initial discussion and then i go back and you know we decide we file a patent application whatever the case might be and then think okay what's needed to turn this into a package that could go to that next step of moving it out of the lab and that you know that's a long complicated process it's not like you do a couple of things and it's ready to go, but it's if it seems like it might make it and it might be useful to get it out into the world, you know, then I'm willing to invest the the, the tremendous time and energy it takes and 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 several years to try to go down that path for that project. Right, and you've spent. I mean, I can't even imagine how much time you've put into this. How many startups have you either launched or are currently launching over the course of your career? I've done four startups and the first one was when I was up in Boston and then three more since I've been at Columbia and we're working on a couple more ideas now. So yeah, each one is a labor of love as they say, where there's, it's a, it's an iterative process of talking to investors, finding out what the feedback is on that project. And, and also the times change the sort of investor, um, taste changes every few years. And so kind of keeping up with what's the latest sense of, of what would make a good platform or asset or, or multi-asset company and seeing is, is, is what we have something that can be developed into a, a basis for such a startup, or maybe there's a license to an existing company. We, you know, we're always happy to explore that as well. Right. I remember when I, when I joined, so as you know, I was at the Boston Consulting Group for seven years prior to coming to Columbia. And one of those projects was uh, for the Bloomberg administration in New York on the differences between the New York City biotech um, ecosystem and, and the Boston and San Francisco biotech ecosystems and whether New York City could ever catch up to Boston and San Francisco. Um, and so obviously the New York and the ability to be an academic scientist entrepreneur has changed a lot over the last 15 years. Are, do you feel like it's getting easier to launch a biotech company like out of a lab and into the market in New York City? I definitely feel like it's getting easier. And I think I'm just really fortunate to be at Columbia because with CTV, that's 90% of the, the problem solved. To have a great team, your team, in CTV who can help us with the filing of, you know, the patents, talk, connecting to investors, thinking about the strategy, presenting it, and then all the nuts and bolts of getting the startup going. If we didn't have that, you know, it would, there'd be no way to launch any of these companies. So I would just, you know, throw up my hands and exhaustion and <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you used any of the, um, you know, we've got these lab to market accelerator programs at Columbia. Have you gone through any of those? 
Yeah, yeah, we've been in in several of those, and uh, one project that went through that the lab to market accelerator system is now we're kind of working. It's a protein degradation company, and we're getting further and further along. We're not quite there yet with getting you know, investor syndicate, but um, it's it's definitely getting closer than it's ever been, and it eats each iteration it helps and the accelerator definitely helped us get some of the data that's you know gotten us close to finally launching the company that's great all right for the sake of the audience the lab to market accelerator networks at columbia are a group of these um accelerators this is basically the idea is to take a brilliant innovation coming out of a lab like dr stockwells or others um and then help the team of scientists um, get connected with mentors and advisors from industry, receive a little bit of, of money to do sort of a last mile experiment to try and prove that the science works, to put together a pitch deck or a marketing deck for investors, and to try and get out there and see if this really works. Um, and so those are the programs that, that Dr. Stockwell's referring to. Um, and so you're a lifelong New Yorker. Um, I know you went to high school here. You went to high school actually with my wife at Hunter High School. Um, here in the I city. did. I did. I always forget that. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, and, and do, you know, so when these companies are launching, do you, these days, are you inclined to have them start and grow in New York? And, and do you, do you feel like it's a hospitable town for startups to grow in? I do. I, in the beginning, it was a question mark to see, well, could we do startups? This would be kind of an innovative thing. But I think at this point, there's so much lab space and there's so many investors in New York and it's a lot of uh, talent and with you know CTV and the incubator labs like launch labs around that it's definitely a great place to start a company. And I don't feel like that's really a question anymore. I, don't, I think people outside New York don't realize that because the perception changes slowly over time right but but being here on the inside i can see it's in my perspective it's not that different from the boston scene which i was pretty familiar with having been in boston the only i mean there's not like one central place where everybody congregates but there are a few places where people congregate here and i think if we had more centralization or sort of uh, a place where everybody could meet up virtually or in person in this ecosystem that might be helpful but I think the one thing we're still missing a little bit, the last 10%, if, if CTV is 90%, the last 10% is the talent. So getting the high level talent in particular, there's lots of, of entry level talent and even kind of advanced uh, entry level, director level even, but getting the you know CEO, CSO, VP level, experienced biopharmaceutical industry executives, who are ready to jump to the next thing or can be partly involved while you're building it. Um, that's, that's the the piece that still needs some work and, you know, we're working on it. We, we could working on finding those people, but if we could have more, more people and easier access to them, that I think would help solve the last piece of the puzzle. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of people around New York city working on that challenge and we've made a lot of progress over the years. I mean, if you look at Nancy Thornberry joining Calliope, or Shoshana Shendelman at Applied Therapeutics, just both of those Columbia startups. Um, those are the kind of CEOs who can really make something happen and bring something to market. Um, and I, you know, I think what everyone's hope is is that as companies like Prevail um, have an exit and you know the senior team disperses, but hopefully stays in the area, 
that they'll come back and they'll want to do it again and again, and they'll be available to startups such as your own um, as you're launching and growing. When you think back, I, I mentioned Hunter, so I'll just, when you think back to your time in high school, um, you know, I'm struck, I'm struck now, many people, many scientists at Columbia are, are perfectly content to come up with amazing innovations out of their labs and not only do that, but also try to launch companies off of them, which is great. But in addition to that, you've written a book. Um, so, uh, you know, you wrote, you wrote a book called The Quest for the Cure. Um, you not only are sort of vigorously involved in teaching your classes, you've actually won multiple teaching awards across Columbia Teaching Awards. Um, you've conducted a clinical trial on different ways of using the flipped classroom. Like, you seem to have a lot of interests and pursue all of them with an extraordinary amount of passion. So I, I just wonder, like, if you weren't doing this, um, was there a time when you thought, you know, gee, I'm going to be a lawyer or I should go into politics? Like, was there was there a world, an alternate reality where you didn't become a scientist? Absolutely. I did not think I wanted to be a scientist until probably late. And even then, maybe not in graduate, maybe in graduate school, I would say. When I was in high school, I liked science and I liked studying science, but I didn't, I didn't even know what a scientist was, I would say. I didn't even know what a PhD was, honestly. So for me, I just enjoyed studying what I study. And I, I kind of always, I never really liked working for anyone else. So I always just wanted to do my own thing, kind of like a bohemian artist. And so the idea of, of just being able to do my own thing, think and explore was attractive to me. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll start my own company doing something one day when I graduate from college. And so I, but I just studied what I was interested in. And, and when I went to Cornell, I, I studied economics and I studied chemistry. Just those were two topics I had enjoyed in high school. And then when I got to the end of college, it seemed like, oh, everyone in chemistry goes on to do this PhD thing. And if I do that, then maybe I could not have a boss and I could again sort of start my own company or do. And then it was like late in the PhD, I was like, well, you know what? I could, someone could pay me to sit around and think and just enjoy kind of the, the puzzles that I stumble across. And I could still start a company and, and not have anyone to report to. So it seems like a good deal. <laughs> I love that you, you might be the only person I've spoken to who thought that, that getting the PhD was kind of an easy path towards an outcome. Uh, that is not famously a super easy way to get something done. I mean, it takes such a long time and such an intense amount of study. Um, but it seems like it's actually led you to exactly where you want it to be. I think I I recognize it is the terminal degree in science and that you wouldn't be taken seriously as an expert on the science side, you know, not the business side, but the science side without the PhD. And so I never wanted to be in a position where I would offer an opinion and people would say, yeah, but you don't really know what you're talking about on that because you don't have a PhD. Now, it turns out you can have a PhD in one thing and have no idea about another thing, but at the time, it seemed like it would give me the expertise and the credibility to kind of be able to to excel in that field. So, speaking of of, of you know collaborating with with outside experts or outside innovators, um, you know because not you know one person can't possibly know everything. As you think about the road ahead, and I'll make this my final question: As you think about the road ahead, have there been 
major breakthroughs in any of the related fields that you've seen from either elsewhere at Columbia or outside the university that have made you kind of smack your head and go like, wow, that's that opens up whole new vistas for me. I now can see, uh, you know, how I want to spend my next couple of years of working. Yeah, I would say the the single cell approach is something that is has been pretty revolutionary. What is that? The, the single cell approach. So being able to interrogate individual cells and uh, the classic thing, the first technique that came out was single cell sequencing. So where you can look at the gene expression profile in individual cells and you can see, oh, this is a tumor cell, but there are actually three kinds of tumor cells with different you know, classes of gene expression profiles in this tumor. And there are macrophages and T cells, and they're in these different clusters, or each one has a unique gene expression profile. So in other words, not to look at the bulk, take the tumor and all the cells in it and grind it up and look at the average property, but actually see the properties of each individual cell. That's like seeing you know, the pixels on the painting instead of just grinding up all the colors and getting mm. a, a, a brown average. So and what does that allow that you to do? Been, that allows you to to see the the different subtypes of cells that are present and the different behaviors of individual cells. So you could see, oh, if we treat with this drug, we're killing. It might look like we're, we're well, we killed half the tumor cells, but it might be you killed one subtype and there's another subtype that's completely unaffected. So that suggests that you know you you have a good drug, but for only half the tumor, rather than a halfway effective drug for the entire tumor. Uh, interesting. So that would, I mean, presumably that would have a huge difference in the kinds of, um, I mean, especially for someone like yourself who's who's always trying to design new small molecule therapeutics for things. If you could uh, target things that much more specifically, that seems like an enormous breakthrough. Um, at, right. Right. Uh, yes, exactly. I think it's a it's a tremendously important technology, and that's just the first layer, the single cell RNA sequencing. Now there's lots of single cell methods. Now there are methods, spatial methods, where you can actually image a tissue and see the genes turning on and off in individual cells at large scale across the tissue. And then we've started getting involved with mass spectrometry imaging where you can see metabolism and drugs at down at the single cell level. So where is a drug going into which cells? And what is it doing in those individual cells? So it's kind of like an unprecedented view into the way that uh, tissues are operating and how they're affected in disease and by drugs. Wow. So that sounds like the, the work of your lab for the next couple of years. That'll give you plenty to work on. Is there anything you're working on outside of the lab you want to tell us about? Yeah, I'm working on a new book for general audiences. I had the, the Quest for the Cure actually about 10 years ago now that was released. And I've been working the last few years on an idea for a new book, trying to understand how great discoveries are made and how more people could participate in that process. So I think I have some insights into that that, that aren't obvious to most people. And I'm trying to put all that together into a, a new book for the general public. <laughs> That's fascinating. Are you ta are you looking at the last like five years, 10 years, 20 years, or is this going back, you know, beyond? Oh yeah, this is just looking back through history. I mean, some examples from my own work and things that I've seen 
how did we make this discovery? What was the insight that actually led us to that? What was the thought process, a kind of a metacognitive approach? And then in other cases where we can get the same information about the metacognitive type of process, what were those discoveries? And there's, some of these go back hundreds of years, but you know, a lot of them are over the last century or you know, even 50 or 60 years. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Dr. Stockwell, thank you. I know how busy you are, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure, Oren. Thanks for having me.